digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is Will the Thrill. Hey, that's me. Greetings and salutations. Aw, yay. And then my big brother from the exact same mother, Mr. TJ2, the deuce. Nice. Nice. What are you, what are you drinking now? I'm actually having a margarita. What? <laughs> Very nice. Why are you having a margarita? It's been a week. Okay. Why, why am I having a margarita? Because I have lime, sour mix, and tequila in my house. It's <laughs> as good a reason as any. Fair enough. So I'm going to talk about one of the people that passed. My brother is going to cover the passing of Mojo Nixon. And then Will the Thrill is going to talk about Toby Keith. So mm. those are the folks that we've lost this week. It was a really bad week. And we lost Carl Weathers, and I hate that. So I guess I will start it off. We lost Cheetah Rivera. I am absolutely bummed by this. She was born on January 23rd, 1933, and she passed away on January 30th. Sorry, yeah, so she was born January 23rd, 1933, and passed away on January 30th this year, you know, just a couple days ago. It has been a little bit since we recorded, and so we're just kind of catching you guys up. She was professionally known as Cheetah Rivera, but her name was Dolores Conchita Figueroa del Riviero. So she went by Cheetah Rivera. For those who don't know, she was an actress, singer, dancer. She was incredible at all three. She received numerous accolades, including two Tony Awards, two Drama Desk Awards, and a Drama League Award. She was the first Latina and the first Latin American to receive a Kennedy Center Honors Award in 2002 and the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2009. And she also won the Tony Award for the Lifetime Achievement in 2018. She made her Broadway debut in Guys and Dolls, and then she went on to originate the roles such as Anita in West Side Story, Velma Kelly in Chicago in 1975, and the title role in Kiss of the Spider Woman. And she was also a 10-time Tony Award nominee, winning the award for Best Music, Best Actress in a Musical twice for her roles in The Rink and Kiss of the Spider Woman. And uh, I showed Will... I want to say it was the Kennedy Center Honors that I first saw her on, and I absolutely fell in love with her. She did one of the songs from Kiss the Spider Woman, and it was absolutely flawless. I, I love her. She brought light into this world. She made me have such a passion for musical theater, and she will be greatly missed. I'm really bummed out about that. So, In a word, Broadway royalty. It, well, that's that's two words, but I mean, you try. You try. <laughs> in a it's, phrase. It's I'll get a, there. It's been a really long week for all of us, okay? Yeah. <laughs> it's been a bad week. TJ, do you want to talk about a little bit about Mojo Nixon? Yes. Here's what I would say about Mojo Nixon. I do not know how to categorize Mojo <laughs> Rock, punk, hillbilly, country, craze, comedy, DJ, musician, person. He's, Mojo's, Mojo is kind of a throwback to a bygone era when you could... You could, you know, do whatever kind of music you want to do, but you could almost get by on a gigantic personality and a sense of humor. And he had both of those in spades. I think he was, I think he was still hosting a show on Sirius on the Outlaw Country channel. I, I believe so. I'm not entirely certain. Yeah, but... I believe he was. He he very sadly was on an Outlaw Country cruise when he 
passed away. If you haven't seen his obituary, you should go read it because his family wrote it and it is completely badass. <laughs> um, but, you know, he was, he did songs like Debbie Gibson is Pregnant with My Two-Headed Love Child and <laughs> he did Don Henley Must Die and uh, Elvis is Everywhere and you know, they were funny, but they were ballsy and he made fun of people and there was a lot of political commentary and in and, and his stuff and kind of skewering pop culture a lot. And of course, the quick, very funny story, he was performing at a place in Austin, Texas and went into Don Henley Must Die and a guy just gets up from the audience, walks up on stage, Mojo looks at him and it was Don Henley. Jeez. Ah, and Mojo looked at him and said, you coming up here to fight me or something? Don said, no. He said, you going to debate me or something? He said, no. He said, well, what are you doing up here? He said, to sing the song with you. He said, I especially like the part where I'm never getting back together with Glenn Fry, which of course happened like <laughs> three or four years after this incident occurred. Um, he then rewrote that song because he said, you know, Henley showed me he's got balls the size of church bells. So I'm, I have new respect for him and I'm never doing that song again. And he rewrote it to Michael Bolton must die. But he used Aww. to be a fixture. On, yeah. He used to be a fixture on MTV. Just incredibly funny. He did. I, I know some of the music for him, maybe some of the voices too for Redneck Rampage. Video you game? Can't, yep. You can't kill me. And there was one about, oh God, was it UFOs, big rigs and beer or something? There's, no. there's another song, but you can't kill me where he goes on the screen about McDonald's and says something about dingleberries hanging out of his butt that tastes better than Big Macs. <laughs> it's just, like I said, it, it, it's very hard to sum the man up. He's, but I've long been an admirer, but back to the gosh, late 80s, I guess, when I first saw one of his videos. He's name dropped in Punk Rock Girl by the Dead Milkmen. And so uh, just a, a great voice for comedy and rebellion and, and real rock and roll has been silenced and we'll miss you, Mojo. Yeah. And then, Will, do you want to wrap this up? I'll do my best, yeah, covering Toby Keith, which was, wow, crazy loss. I, I don't think he was very public with his uh, with his battle with stomach cancer, from what I understand. Actually, I, of course. I, I want to say that his his wife was shocked by the diagnosis. Yeah. Like, I want, I think that was a, an I think, article well, that he, popped up. He, had, he went public with it. Uh, I know at some point last year, and he did an appearance at one of the country music ceremonies, and he had he had lost a lot of weight. It, it was obvious something, you know, that something was up. And he, had, but all he pretty much said about it was, "I've been diagnosed with this. I'm in the fight, uh, but I'm you know doing well." And that was pretty much it. But even that, you know, Toby had such a great sense of humor. You know, he he had lost a considerable amount of weight because of you know chemo and radiation. And he said, uh, "He said, I bet you guys never thought you'd see me in skinny jeans." <laughs> Nice. <laughs> he was one of those artists that, you know, came into like sort of the cross section of his career in the late 90s. That's where I was first exposed to Toby Keith. And he had been around, you know, about a decade and change prior to that and was, you know, on making albums through 2023. He was an Oklahoman, from what I understand, and yep. very proud of that. Obviously, his catalog of country music is just nothing less than extensive, starting with his debut album in 1984, 85. No, sorry, 93. It was 93. And I understand he was making music even prior to that, but he just exploded in the late 90s and became, you know, an absolute superstar with albums like Boomtown and was it Blue Moon? How do you like me now? Yeah. He was everywhere. Yeah. He was, yeah. Really and the thing good. is, he had, I knew he had a ton of hits because he had, God, he had a million great songs, but. Like he had over thirty number one country hits and That's bonkers. Like multiple, multiple, multiple albums that were triple platinum plus, and you know, I think made it a point to go overseas and perform for the troops a lot and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, he's got, you know, some songs that everybody, everybody knows I love this bar and how do you like me now? And should have been a cowboy. I think it's the most played song on American radio, regardless of genre period in the 1990s. <laughs> but I really dig some of those like mid tempo, like broken heart songs he does. Like who's that man and my list. And my list is great. That's a great song. And which I didn't know now, and he ain't worth missing some of those. But you start going through his catalog, man. Good it's lord, deep. it's deep. <laughs> guys, guys yeah. And the longevity the dude had to start with should have been a cowboy in '93, and had I think his last hit in 2021. That's remarkable. That's almost yeah. 30 years. That just doesn't yeah. happen very much. And he had released albums pretty much up and you know till the year before he passed. Yeah, you know he was survived by, of course, his wife. You know, LD you mentioned her, Trisha, Trisha Lucas, I believe. He had. She's four children. Wow. Big family. And it was sad to lose him. He passed away, of course, from complications due to stomach cancer this February on the 5th. And it is truly a loss to not only country music, but music in general. So, you know, thank you, Toby. Yeah. So let's uh, talk about something really quick. I got to meet Henry Thomas today. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty cool. Which is awesome. You know who who Henry Thomas is, don't you, T? Nah. Yeah, you do. You saw E.T. He was Elliot. Was he the... Guy that phoned home and had the glowing finger, or what? Yeah, uh, no that that was that was ET. Oh, okay. Then I'm not I'm not familiar. Yeah, the, he was Elliot, uh, but of course you don't understand streaming. So lately he's had a resurgence working with this guy named Mike Flanagan, who is probably one of my favorite directors of all time. I love everything he does. If you slap his name on something, I will watch it. But Henry Thomas is. I got to meet him today, and I met Alec Baldwin, and I met Andy Circus. Awesome. So it was a good day. <laughs> It was a really good day. I am an adult spending my adult money <laughs> the way I want to. So I have two brand new signed Funko Pops, and Will has a documentary about Gollum that is now signed by Andy Circus. So That's pretty awesome, yeah. Yeah, and you uh, snuck that in. <laughs> yeah, I did. You didn't even know it was missing. So I did not. No, it didn't miss it from the shelf. <laughs> well, that was that was my my fun time. But let's uh let's get to Graham. But first, I think this is a good spot to take our first sponsor break, and we will be right back. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. 
Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right, we're back. All right, so we're just going to talk about Graham Parsons. When we last met, which was like, Two, three weeks ago, I think. How long has it been? I feel like I'm... Was it 2023? We, we missed one. <laughs> no, we missed... We, we, we took one week off. We took one week off. We took one week off. And it, and it, it was... work and the illness and... Just... It seems like so long ago general since we recorded. Yes. Yep. General bet shittiness. That's, that's actually... Yes, that's actually the legal term for it. So, so if uh, if you guys don't remember, I'll just catch you up. Last time we talked about how Graham had unfortunately lost his father due to suicide, and then we introduced you to Bob Parsons, his surname's sake, and his stepfather. So let's try to cover a little more ground on Graham's life. Now we know at this time that Graham is still a young kid, but he would hang out with his friends and take. I had to look this up because I didn't know what this was. He would take something called trucker bennies do you know what those are anybody is it like an upper like a white cross it's a pill containing benzedrine which is a type of amphetamine so i guess yes it was an upper so truckers could, would take it and truck you know, speed. yeah truck stop speed and that was his drug of choice so they would always find some way to sort of circumvent the dry laws and the age limit his friend carlton said that they would go to the florenceville and find a guy on the street and give him an extra buck and he would get us a six-pack Graham at the time was getting a reputation of being a bad boy along with his friends Grant and Dougie. But the thing is, his family, and I'm going to be like, I can't hammer this home enough, but his family was considered heavy drinkers and, you know, ones that might have an affair. So Graham was just living up to the family name. And at this time, he was only 15. Moreover, <laughs> there were other issues that were happening with the family. And one of them was that little Avis loved horses. You will, you will understand in a little bit why I'm bringing this up. But her cousin, Susan Snively, later Susan Alexander, inherited a passion for show horses from her father, John Jr., and little Avis became enthralled with them. So Graham had his music, and Avis spent her free time in a riding club and later became a dedicated horsewoman, which I didn't know that Will didn't know what a horse girl was. And so this I was had to, me. yeah, I had to introduce him to what a horse girl was on TikTok because I didn't know it was a thing either until like 12 videos about them popped up on my TikTok. So. Cornelius Snively Wallace said, my father-in-law, John Jr., also that's a name, Cornelius Snively Wallace, that is that is a rich person's name. <laughs> um, John Jr. spent all of the family money on show horses. Avis could not get enough money from John Jr. to buy little Avis a horse as fine as his daughter Susan's horses were that she was showing. And that's why Avis ended up suing the Snively family, that oh. and Bob Parsons. Ever since John Sr. had died, the family empire started to crumble. John Sr. had put the family's wealth into a network of trusts. Once John Jr. had become the family's head, he indulged in his expensive show horse habit with the family cash. So you can see where the problem is going to be. 
so between lending money and selling off pieces of the business to satisfy his family's need for cash, John slowly dismembered the family's holdings. Most of the sales were either below value or ill-timed. He sold off the groves during the worst landmark slump in Florida's history. He was just a landmark bad businessman. Landmark slump? Yeah, it was a landmark uh, slump. Uh, like, okay. Like he, when he sold off the groves, uh, it was, it was not, it was ill-timed. It was the worst time you could possibly sell off land. Like so he it bought was, high and sold low. Yeah, exactly what you're not yeah. supposed to do. So he bought a chicken farm and didn't know what to do with the chicken farm. And uh, basically, he just kind of filtered all the money through these really bad business investments and the show horses. And so throughout the years, money just disappeared. He wasn't a crook. He was just a really bad businessman. And to put it blankly, little ears covered now. He was just infected with super shitty judgment. Making matters worse, Big Avis decided to sue her family to gain control over the share of his wealth. Her relatives blamed her second husband, saying Parsons talked to Avis into suing the family, says Rob Hoskins. The claim was that John Jr. hadn't provided Avis with what she deserved. And then kind of everybody else dogpiled onto John, feeling the same way about themselves. So, of course, they sued him as well. And what everybody wanted was to have a certain slice of the family pie, so to say. They sued to break the trust under John Jr., and divvying out kind of piecemeal what was owed to all the families. So the whole family took him to court and they actually won the case against him. So they broke up the trust and Avis got her piece of the pie and it was actually the biggest piece of the pie. Hers was about $2.5 million. Now, if you guys remember Ooh. at the beginning of the series, I had talked about how he was worth about $30 million and John Jr., I guess, sort of just pissed it away with bad investments and Again, if and think about it, she's only getting two point five million dollars, which like if somebody was like, hey, here's two point five million dollars, I would be like, this is awesome. Thank you. But you have to imagine like she was probably used to having so much more. Mm -hmm. So in the summer of 1961, Big Avis introduced Graham to Buddy Freeman. He met the Parsons through a horse trainer that was working with little Avis at the time she was 10 years old and flying to Greenville, South Carolina. Woo! Mm. We know that where Buddy lived to compete in shows. And at this horse show, Graham was bored to tears. He didn't know about or care anything about horses. So Buddy tried to kind of engage him and try to keep him entertained. And it took a little while to warm up to Graham, but he finally let him know that he was a musician. And he promised to get the manager of this place that he worked to allow Graham to play the big piano in the bar at an after party. And Graham brightened right up. After dinner, he sat down to play. And the thing was that didn't take him long to basically have everyone in that room wrapped around his finger. And it's, it's said that Avis could not have been prouder of her son at that moment. Graham went to visit Buddy in Greenville for a few days playing the guitar at one of the parties at his neighbor's barbecue. Thanks to word of mouth that was generated at these parties, Buddy's efforts got Graham on a local television station. They were actually seeking an interview with Graham. During that interview, he played some folk songs and then set up a little prop background and did some photo shoots. And he had a lot of charisma. Everybody was just kind of wooed by him because he's this like really talented, adorable kid. I mean, he's 15. So and he's a good looking kid at 15. He was super talented. So people just fell over themselves. And so they wanted to tape some segments for future broadcasts for the noontime slot for was back then considered what's called an everyday show. And Graham was absolutely delighted. He went back to Winter Haven and Buddy's phone started ringing. 
He said, a couple people called me from a restaurant in Lauderdale and wanted to talk to Graham's manager. I ran down Graham and asked him about it. And he said, oh, I gave them your name and your number and I want you to act as my manager. I said, now Graham, you know, I can't be your manager. And he said, don't know, but you're going to. <laughs> and I told him I would help, but I had no idea where this was all going. Now, in 1961, Avis gave birth to her third child, Diane. She was named for Bob Parsons' sister. A year later, Avis arranged for another new addition to the household, which was a 19-year-old woman named Bonnie Muma. And I think I'm getting that right. Bonnie had been babysitting in Winter Haven for socialite families who referred her to Big Avis. She hired Bonnie to be Diane's nanny. And with, within a few years, Bonnie became Bob Parsons' lover <clears throat> and third wife. Hmm. Just gonna go ahead and say that. Just leave that there. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I'm I'm actually going to dig very deep into it. So that being said, Bob adored his new daughter. When he came home from work, he went straight into her room. He liked to brush her hair and throw her over her head while she giggled. He loved to basically give her whatever he was eating, be it caviar, salmon, steak, and Bob would rain presents on her. One Christmas he came back from New York and and he was loaded with toys from F.A.O. Schwartz. And that was for Graham and little Avis and Diane, including the gigantic, big, you know, that that giant F.A.O. Schwartz teddy bear. The massive one, yeah. Yeah, he bought that for Diane. And uh, the just- price tag on that thing. I have no idea, but like, that's a huge bear. <laughs> yeah. And of course, just like a cat at Christmas, you buy him all the nice little gifts. Yeah, you, know, you buy them all these little toys and they just want to lay in the box. She kind of did oh, yeah. the same thing. She was like playing with the wrapping paper and apparently she got her hands on a milk carton and just started pushing that around instead of playing with the teddy bear. <laughs> Bob didn't care because she was happy. So he was just sitting in the back smiling, which is, you know, it's kind of cute. All right. I'm not saying he's a great person. It was kind of cute though. Okay. <laughs> in 1962, Big Avis invited Buddy Freeman down to Point Verda. Florida, which is this ritzy beach community south of Jacksonville. And Buddy would spend time with Graham and Big Avis trying to sort out Graham's future. At this time, Avis, in Buddy's words, said, held Graham's feet to the fire to make him say exactly what he wanted instead of beating around the bush. So while staying there, Freeman arranged a contract for Graham to play a solo folk rock gig at a coffee house in St. Augustine. Buddy found a socialite photographer to shoot promo portraits of Graham and posted them outside the coffee house. Graham played Friday nights and Saturday nights, and Buddy actually negotiated a $500 fee for the two shows, and that was a giant leap from the $100 gig with the Legends, which we talked about last time we met. And that would just be him. Nothing had to be shared. Buddy didn't take a manager's fee. He said, I was doing this for Graham and his mama. Avis had been generous to me, and this was my payback. The coffeehouse crowd ran from like 15 to 35 year olds. So like roughly his age to you know, somewhere around his parents' age. So Friday night, a hundred people came in. And then the next night, 150 people came in. Mm -hmm. So so his crowd was growing exponentially. And at one point it was standing room only. Graham played about 45 minutes, including his repertoire, which was Blue Velvet. And it was a very good year, which is a great song. Such a good song. Blue Velvet? No. Blue Velvet's great, but it was a very good year. It's also a really good song. Nice. Now, he recalled that he was smart enough to blend in a lot of ballads, which is kind of what that crowd would want. And as Parsons' marriage became increasingly strained and both of his parents started consuming more and more alcohol, 
Graham would gain a lot more freedom. At this time, it wasn't uncommon for him to take off in the middle of the night just leaving a note. When Graham turned 16, Bob kind of fell into really loving James Bond. Um, okay. So he bought Graham, well, he bought himself a red Austin Healy Sprite, hmm. which was a rare English two-seater sports convertible. I mean, yeah, I keep forgetting, what, what year is this? This is like... 60... Uh, Goldfinger? Two? Or, yeah, Maybe. I think it would have been Goldfinger then. Look, I have seen three James Bond movies, <laughs> and I and they're all because of you. I've never seen one I on my, my own. Best, yeah. <laughs> you tried. You tried, I buddy. I mean, and, and you, you watched them, yeah. Yeah, I, and I sort of liked them. I'm not, I'm not like a massive James Bond fan, but I liked what I saw. So uh, just like his father, in Hawaii, Graham would race around the countryside with the top down. And when Graham got grounded for six weeks, he was denied the use of the Sprite. Jim Carlson took over the driving, taking Graham wherever he wanted to go. And at this point, Graham was basically raising himself, said Grant Lassert. His mother was a serious alcoholic. I recall Avis with her big jug of Jack Daniels before lunchtime. My parents might have taken a drink every, every night with dinner and... That was unusual in the South at the time. I never saw my folks drink in the daytime. But if Avis went to visit her sister, she had to take a drink with her in the car. Oh, wow. Now, even though by all accounts, Bob was no good because of Big Avis's presence in the family or lack thereof, Graham's relationship to Bob even closer. He was being treated as an adult, which was no doubt a pleasure compared to being snarled at by his mom, who was consistently inebriated. So it was nice for him to have somebody who took an interest in his life. But the thing is... It seems like Avis kind of ran hot and cold. She'd mm. have these like moments of being a wonderful mom, providing for her family, and then there were just times where he was just, she was just absolutely inebriated. So it's weird because everything I've read kind of gives two sides of the spectrum. So it's really hard to kind of truly know the kind of woman Big Avis was. So, you know, by all accounts, this could be, you know, 40 years, 50 years of the past, just kind of misremembering or, you know, I don't know. I don't know. That's just, this is me doing my research, learning what I can. So not everybody disliked Bob. I mean, a lot of people dislike Bob, but not everybody. In fact, Jim Carlton said, I like Bob Parsons. Graham liked Bob Parsons. It was like having Hugh Hefner around. He was debonair, distinguished, sophisticated, and he was fun. His secret was treating us like adults. In 1961, the Legends lineup kind of morphed into the 1962-1963 version, and Graham was on vocals and rhythm guitar. Jim Safford, who was proving to be something of a prodigy on lead guitar, Jesse Chambers was on bass, and John Corneal was on drums. Graham had met Dickie McNear when the Pacers played a battle of the bands in 1960 at the Lions Club in Lake Alberta, Florida, and it wasn't until 1962 at the beginning of junior year in Winter Haven that Graham and Dickie became friends, fellow inebriates, and musical partners. Dickie was the same age as Graham and attended Winter Haven High and grew up in a wealthy citrus family, which was part of the Winter Haven Country Club and had a big house and, like Graham, had a passion for music, so he was somebody who was kind of like a mirror to him. Graham continued playing shows with the Legends and doing solo acoustic performances set up by Buddy Freeman, but Graham and Dickie also spoke of forming a, you know, a, a folk group. And at the time, he had a remarkable access to current folk music, W-I-S-R-A-M, Dice Ram, okay, <laughs> in, in Winter Haven, played rock, and then they would play folk music for an hour at night, and then W-G-T-O which was broadcast from Cypress Gardens, played folk music as well. Again, they're a small town that seems to be in this 
bubble of just musical happiness, right? I mean, because One this would time, imagine, yeah. yeah, this time in the South, folk music wasn't really a thing that you could find on the radio. But for some reason, in this little town, you had two places that you could get your folk music. Now, Dickie would say that Graham was a loner, not a joiner. And I think that's kind of how they hooked up, which is the funniest thing. It's just like, you're a loner. I'm a loner. Let's be loners together. Contradiction. <laughs> the Lone mean? Rangers. I was waiting for that. <laughs> now, Graham and Dickie, when you put them together, you had a couple of Hellraisers. Somehow they would always manage to score dexedrine, which was another form of speed from truckers, and they would drink together. They would actually attempt to debunk drug myths in their free time, which was something like, you know, crushing up aspirins and putting them into a cigarette to try to get high, or to put aspirins in a girl's Coca-Cola to send her into a state of euphoria. They would use syringes to inject vodka into oranges and then eat the oranges in their school lunches. And <laughs> that's pretty innovative. I mean, if you really want vodka, I guess, yeah, but I cannot be drunk in math class. <laughs> I have a hard enough time with math as it is. And egged on by Dickie, Graham started raiding Big Avis's medicine cabinet from time to time. And although it wasn't something that they did on an everyday basis, sometimes they would rummage through her medicine cabinet, find a random pill and say, let's try these. And sometimes <laughs> it would end up making them feel great. And then other times, not so much. 60s were a, an interesting era, weren't they? Let's just try this pill. Yeah, I don't know what it's going to do. I mean, they were just a couple of teenagers experimenting, and of course, they would drink all of Bob Parsons' beer, rum, and bourbon alongside of Bar their Bacardi, Jack Daniels, and your personal favorite, honey, wild turkey. Uh, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> they would go into the barbershop to buy liquor, which apparently was a thing. Yeah, barbers like, had a lot of weird stuff. They were like almost like a pharmacy in many ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's like when you go to the pharmacy to get your milkshakes, and I guess you go to your barber to get your booze. I don't, I don't know. Hey, Dude, the sixties, sixties, the South in the sixties was a wild time. <laughs> um, and so the thing is, I guess they didn't even know that marijuana was a thing at the time. Which, if you're how it was, it was the sixties, man. Yeah, of all things, I would think that would be pretty much it'd be pretty prominent on the radar. Yeah. Graham and Dickie jammed on their acoustic guitars and formed a folk trio, the Village Vanguards, named for the famous Greenwich Village Jazz Club. Their third member was a classmate at Winter Haven High, the absolutely gorgeous Patty Johnson. Graham and Patty were already dating when she was invited to join the band. The only folk band in Polk County, the Vanguards modeled themselves after Peter, Paul, and Mary. They initially asked Patty because she had long blonde hair, was good looking, and could sing. I would like to say that order again. She had long blonde hair, was good looking, and could sing. Why did I repeat that? Singing was last. Interesting. Yeah. Patty was a star. Beautiful, smart, you know, who else would Graham be head over heels for? Now, following the trends in a pre-Dylan folk group time, the vanguards were matching outfits. Dickie and Graham had light green three-piece suits with little lapels, and they carried cane umbrellas. So that... Patty wore a light green Ford-fitting dress in the style of Mary Travers from Peter, Paul, and Mary. They would actually go to their homecoming game in the fall of 1962 wearing those suits. And Patty, of course, was on the field leading the cheers because she's gorgeous. She can sing. She's got beautiful hair. She is a cheerleader. I mean, she seems kind of perfect. <laughs> the, the boys bought a cooler to that game with a bottle of carbonated grape juice wrapped in a cloth like champagne with champagne glasses. And they were toasting each other in the stands with grape juice, but sadly the good times ended when Graham got yanked down 
to the concession stand where as a junior he was actually required to work. And so for the rest of the game, he sold hot dogs in his green three-piece suit. That's amazing. I, I wish I had a green three-piece suit. Oh, we are adults with adult money, honey. Do not tempt me. I feel like Jim Falconson should have one. He's got a gold one. I know. It would compliment with a green one very nicely. Let him have his gold one. <laughs> the gold one is amazing. The Vanguards play the Almond Steakhouse in Winter Haven during breaks between dances at the high school gym or at the women's club and at house parties and talent shows. They also performed during intermission of the legend shows. So Graham would perform with the legends and then the Vanguards would perform when the legends were on a break. So he never stopped performing, which is crazy. The trio would sing over the school's intercom in the morning and during lunch breaks. And between the legend shows and the Vanguard shows, Graham had not a lot of time to actually be a high school student. Well, I found it interesting that you were required to work at the concession stand. Like, that was, like, what you did. How big is their concession stand? I know. How many kids do they have working there? I picture, like, you know, when you had a stadium and it's, like, an entire wall of beer and hot dogs. And... <laughs> it was a very large school. Clearly. So, Graham wasn't doing any of his schoolwork like he should have been. And he didn't attend classes, but he never seemed to get in trouble because of that. So... Hmm. Uh, Basically, I guess he was just super charismatic, so everybody just liked him. And yeah, we're like, hey, whatever. You don't you don't have to show up to class. It's yeah, fine. Yeah, pass this class. It's all good. Fine. It's totally fine. All right. So back to the adults in Graham's life. Avis was spiraling. She was getting drunk, and she was getting very angry. She was constantly accusing her husband of running around on her, but you'd be hard-pressed to find a single person in their inner circle who claimed to sleep with Bob. So is he actually cheating on her or because she thinks he was already cheating on her that he ends up cheating on her? Like, I don't know if it's a chicken or egg kind of thing. Right. Is it fulfilling prophecy, as they say? Yeah. In the spring of 1963, Bonnie took a vacation. Now, we remember who Bonnie is, right? The the nanny. The nanny? I don't even thought that was yeah, No, that's, that's a different uh, sorry. one. The nanny that Bob hired for the baby Diane. You uh, know, the 19-year-old. Mm. Yeah. So she went on vacation with her girl with a with a girlfriend to Aruba and she said we took off for 2 to 3 weeks looking for boys and both of us found one Bonnie recalls. And the four of us were on the beach and I I heard footsteps behind me and I knew it was Bob, which for me that is kind of that's kind of creepy. Hey, everybody, sorry to cut in here, but we are going to take a quick break for the fine folks who chose to sponsor this show. And I believe we are back. Excellent. Let's get back to Graham Parsons. There is a boardwalk there, and I didn't know how I knew, but I knew. He asked me out that night, and I said no. He said, what about lunch tomorrow? And that's where it started. Once they were back in Winter Haven, the relationship escalated. Things came to a head in the summer when Bonnie was with the family in the beach house at Point Verda. She said one night that she had gotten up to get a glass of water and she was in the kitchen and there was Bob. And apparently he just went for it. She was saying no, but he was saying yes. And from then on, it was a very awkward summer. Bob went back to Columbia in search of more business. He called Bonnie and said that he needed her and he sent her a ticket. She flew down and that is when Avis called my mother, said Bonnie. I don't know how she found out, but she did. Big Avis confronted Bonnie when she returned from Columbia. Bonnie decided that after that, she would break off the affair and leave town. So she enrolled in Palm Beach Junior College. But because of this affair, she had sort of a confirmation bias. 
and this is Avis having the confirmation bias, that he had had plenty of other lovers. After Bonnie left town, Bob wasn't letting her get away. He actually followed her to Palm Beach and pursued her diligently. And after a series of dinners and dates, Bonnie knew that she was in love. Bob got her an apartment in Fort Worth and got her a used station wagon. And even though Bob continued the affair, he didn't have any intention of leaving Davis because he respected her. And that is the biggest pile of bullcrap I have ever heard in my life. <laughs> I know I'm cheating on you, sweetheart, but I'm going to stay with yeah. you because I respect you. Ugh. Gross. I mean, the thing is, he probably respected the money, to be honest. If you guys can't mm. tell, I do not like Bob. I don't. Everything I've read about him, I just don't like him at it all. Seem like, yeah, doesn't seem like there's like, much to, to admire there. I mean, the thing is, like, yeah, you could say, like, he's debonair and he, you know, helped Graham with his music. But the fact is, like, he's just skeevy to me. Yeah, so, definitely. So, yeah. So, you know, if any of Parson's family is listening to this podcast, number one, please weigh in, but be nice about it. I don't know if he's got family still out there, but please tell me those stories because I'm getting, you know, a couple of different, different books are telling me just he was skeevy and I would mm -hmm. like to hear a first person account of him not being skeevy. And at that point, I will say, I'm sorry. What Avis knew about what was going on with her husband remains a mystery, but her response is pretty well known. Sadly, her daily routine consisted of Bloody Marys in the morning, gin and tonics through the afternoon, and martinis starting at 6 o'clock. Mm. And in the midst of a very nasty situation at home, Graham and Patty staged a commotion of their own. The Legends played a woman's club in Lake Howard, and the vanguards were performing during the Legends intermission. During a break, Graham and Patty announced to the 10 or 15 teenagers that were assembled in the room that he had intended to elope that night. Really? So during the show, he just like gathered his friends and was like, hey guys, me and Patty are going to get married. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> Surprise. And, and so the standard of the time for reasons that you would want to have a shotgun wedding or elope, I'm assuming you can figure out one that takes about nine months. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Buying a house. Choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Basically, everybody assumed the reason why they were eloping was because Patty had gotten pregnant. And Graham and Patty drove off right after that announcement, leaving Jim to fill in for Graham on guitar. So, of course, the rumor mill started going. But the thing is, Patty was, in fact, not pregnant. And they did not run off. And they did not get married. Patty's parents stepped in before anybody went anywhere. And, of course, all of this was because of the stunt. Patty wasn't allowed to play with the vanguards anymore. So no more Patty. Now, of okay. course, with everything going on, Graham failed the 11th grade, which is not a shock because he wasn't doing his schoolwork. He wasn't showing up to classes and he wasn't doing anything, you know, to make him go be a senior. But that's not surprising. So he ended up going back to that same boarding school that he went to beforehand. I think it's called Boyles. I'm going to say Boyles. I'm going to say that confidently with my full chest. So he went back to Boyles. In his sixth grade year when he was sent there before, it was a military school. But by 1963, when he came back, it was actually in its first year of trying to shake off that image. The school was nowhere near as harsh as it was when it was a military academy. The uniforms were replaced with gray slacks, blue blazers, and ties. And the teachers believed that the school had provided a healthier environment than Graham would have his disorganized home. And so Graham would hang out with two totally different social circles at the time. One was the kids who were really into the music. And then the other one was described by Fred Brown as the closest thing that the school had to 
counterculture at the time. Okay. Yeah, I mean, basically they would hang out in the smoking circle, which was, this is crazy to me. The smoking circle was actually like a designated place on campus where you were allowed to have cigarettes. We had, we had that when I was a freshman in high school. Really? That was the last year it was allowed, yeah. It was out by the career center, out in front of the career center. Yeah, you could you could actually go smoke there when I was in ninth grade. After that, it was you had to go, you know, you'd walk into any bathroom and the, the, the smell of pale mills would just about knock you over when you smoked the door. I I never went so I was that was your ninth grade, so I was you were one fifth you were in about fifth grade then, yeah. And like because we're five years apart. Like even if we had, I'd been a freshman. But four, what? Well, only four. We're only four grades apart. Because you were born in front of the, I think, in front of the arbitrary bullcrap cutoff that they, and I was and born he, after it. So uh, okay. So you're actually almost five years before grades. So yeah, you would have been in like fifth grade, I guess, at the time. But yeah, no. When I was a freshman, it was still a thing. And I'm not like, I mean, I'm old, but I'm not like decrepit old. So I mean, it's. Not not a terribly long time ago. Which is crazy because I remember it being a thing to be able to smoke on planes, even though I never smoked on a plane. Oh, I remember smoking sessions. Absolutely. I mean, I I also don't remember a time when you could smoke in hospitals. Like, was that the first thing that went? Was like hospitals and then schools and then planes, which is weird. Why do I feel like the planes were before the hospitals? <laughs> yeah. It's a it's well, a giant pressurized tube several miles up in the air. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead and set stuff on fire. Who cares? That seems safe. That seems safe. At Plus least it was compressed a... oxygen. And yeah, go ahead. Well, there was a there was an all smoking plane, like a like an actual airline that catered to smokers. So if you wanted to smoke on a plane, you just flew with them. So just anywhere on the plane. Yeah, like which you know what like. I've seen Welcome less less. to Emphysema Airlines. Uh, <laughs> we're going to skip the thing about the air mask coming down because at this point, what difference does it make? <laughs> All right. So the smoking circle was this place where you'd go to have cigarettes and it was a, a little gazebo. And basically, it was just a place where you could play your guitar and kill yourself with cigarettes. And at this point, Graham decided that it'd be a good idea to start writing songs, which I fully agree. He carried his guitar everywhere and he would perform anywhere with more than three people. Graham wanted to be famous, Larry Slade said. He talked about what it to achieve it. He loved to be the center of attention to perform. I'm not sure he truly loved music as much as he loved performance. Margaret Fish recalls that he was walking ambition. He always knew he was going to be somebody. Graham and Fred were invited to audition for a teen talent show on Channel 4 in Jacksonville. Even as Graham and Fred were rehearsing backstage, he was astonishing his buddies by creating three and four part harmonies on the spot. One of the technicians on the show heard Graham singing sustained half notes in rehearsal and asked, are you doing that on purpose? After several other high school students played the hootenanny, like what's a hootenanny? We've talked about yeah, this. Yeah, and Jim Croce, we talked about a hootenanny, and it's a very specific definition. Was it's, it like can, a basically it like a, folk music? I believe. Yeah, I think it was basically. Yeah, hootenanny is technically like a like a gathering of folk artists or something. Although it yeah, sounds like it involves like you know boning your cousin and a hayride or something. <laughs> I think it is a like a celebrated around folk music. Though. I think folk music is like the centerpiece because it came up in the Croce series. Okay. Yeah. Well, apparently, these students played a hoot nanny, and um, Graham took over, and it was just him in his school uniform on a stool, and he played a song that was made famous by Joan Baez, 
And one of the talent show coordinators actually walked up to Graham and said that his two, his guitar was way out of tune. Calmly, Graham just adjusted his E string, looked up at the coordinator and said, cool, you're right. And then he started the song again without a pause. So, <laughs> so Buddy Freeman continued to set up solo gigs for Graham. In the fall of 1963, he started traveling to Greenville, South Carolina to play a Coca-Cola Hi-Fi Club Hootenanny. That is such a hard sentence to say. Coca-Cola Hi-Fi Club Hootenanny, which was a live radio talent show for folk performers. He was backstage at this Coca-Cola Hi-Fi Club Hootenanny, and he heard a banjo and a guitar rehearsing, and they approached him, and that guitarist was Joe Kelly, and he said, hey, guys, saw the name on the door. I see that your name is the Shilohs. He said he was going to do a song called The Hills of Shiloh and just wanted to make sure that they weren't playing the same thing. They got to chatting and he asked Paul if he would back him up on a couple of things and he'd be happy to. And that's how they met. So Graham had met two thirds of the Shilohs. Joe Kelly usually played the upright bass in the group. Paul Surratt usually played the banjo. And the third member was George Wrigley, who was unwell that night and missed the show. They were from Greenville, South Carolina. Woo! Joe and George were childhood friends and Joe played the ukulele and George the guitar and in junior high they entered a talent show. Joe had a Turner guitar that he played like a ukulele in the junior high school that they played light folk like the Kingston Trio, the Limelighters, and the Brothers Four and they called themselves the Princeton Quartet. During the summer in the 10th grade George played in the Shiloh Singers. At that point the group was made up of George, Paul, Brian Kendrick, who himself was a Civil War history buff and named the band for the Battle of Shiloh. No one seems to know what happened to the H at the end, but it seems to have gotten dropped along with some members of the group, which became the Shilohs. Bryant was a few years older than everybody else and left Greenville for college, and Joe hooked up with George and Paul. Okay, that's the Shilohs. Now, I'll tell you, Graham went on stage and blew the Shiloh's mind. He's saying, you know my voice, I've heard your name, uh, which was a song by the Christie's, Christie Minstrels. These names, I swear to God, some of them are great, like the Vanguards, the Village Vanguards, that's a great, that's a good name. The Pacers, good name. The Legends, good name. But then you have Christie's Minstrels, Nam, no, no. After he came off stage, they talked some more. And after his performance, the three of them got on stage and did Run Maggie Run. And it was undeniable that they had chemistry. It was immediate that they glommed onto each other. They decided that it would be a good idea to get together in their homes and, and work on their material. So uh, Graham and the Shilohs continued to play on their own. Paul and Joe would travel to Jacksonville and Graham would go back to Greenville. Remember, they're still living in Winter Haven. They're in Greenville. They're in Jacksonville. This kid is a traveled kid. He's been everywhere. Yeah. Um, so the the Shilohs would visit Graham and Winter Haven. And the distance between all of these different locations was not the logistical nightmare. It was the fact that all of them were juniors in high school. Please remember, he is not even 18 yet. They were juniors in high school. Working at a concession stand, no less. Yeah, but they're going from South Carolina to Georgia to Florida and back to perform, and they're making money. So good for them. And they're juniors in high school. Let me let me flex that again. Graham secured a regular Saturday afternoon hoot nanny show on the local AM station. 
His instructor and mentor was a man named Joe Dice, who helped him get the slot. I'm probably saying that right. It might be Dies, but it's D Y E S S. Dice. Dice. Hmm. Dice. Um, in the meantime, Buddy Friedman was still searching for gigs for Graham and the Shiloh as a band. So he's working on getting Graham's solo gigs and getting the Shiloh's gigs as well. So gigs that wouldn't interfere with their schoolwork. And at this point, Graham was actually invited to sing at the school's Sunday Vesper service. He would perform after basketball games, singing songs from the Kingsman Trio, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and the Journeyman. And he would stick to classic performances, just sitting on a stool, his acoustic guitar, wearing white jeans. Uh, after one of those shows, someone stole Graham's guitar. It, oh, was, man. it was returned after a few days, which, what is the nicest way to say this? It was stolen by a girl who had been sleeping with her in her bed. So th that she um, stole Graham's guitar and was sleeping with it. So now he was quite the ladies man, I guess. You would think him failing out of the 11th grade and having to go to a former military school that he might not be that bright. But the fact is he was actually regarded by his teachers as one of the smartest kids in the school and extremely likable. Graham bonded one of his professors, Robert Hubbard, who was educated at Harvard and came from a wealthy family. And there was a rumor going around at this time, which seems to be kind of a through line with this whole story, was that Hubbard found himself at this school because his alcoholism rendered him unable to function in the world. He was oh, brilliant, well-read, and an inspiring teacher, and he was a good friend to his students, but a very hard drinker. And Graham was Hubbard's favorite student. I mean, Graham probably took to him for obvious reasons, because that's what he kind of grew up with. I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. And when you said the girl slept with the guitar, do you mean like, G <laughs> string, G string? I mean, I was oh, God. really having a hard time following you on that. Oh, my. You said, I'm trying I, to think of a nice way to say it, and you said it so nicely that I don't know. I, I don't know what I mean. I read okay. that. I don't know what it means. I don't know if, yeah, if, if he was. Plucking the strings all the way from, you know, G to G. Right. You stole that from six. Yeah, I did. Hey, you want to pull my whammy bar? From major to minor, C to D. Yeah, I've seen six. Yeah. So Buddy Freeman was at a friend's wedding in Raleigh, North Carolina, when he got a call on the phone, which is weird because how do you get a random phone number at a wedding? Whatever. It was Dick Pope, the creator and part owner and director of Cypress Gardens theme parks. And I think those are still around, aren't they? Cypress Garden? I'm not sure. Cypress Garden theme park. Uh, Buddy said, Pope, I've got your tickets for Chicago in the morning. And he told Pope that there was a misunderstanding. Tomorrow was Easter Sunday and he'd be attending services at the First Presbyterian Church. No, Pope said. I sent the tickets to the boys and they will be waiting there for you. What boys? Pope said that he was talking about Graham Parsons and the Shilohs. Pope had already sent Graham to Chicago, and Graham had not told Freeman a single thing. Pope told Freeman that he had rooms waiting at the Palmer Hotel, which was like the swanky hotel in downtown Chicago. Freeman called the Shilohs. Apparently, the band was off to Chicago to record at Universal Studios, and they had been talking about that in some like vague way, but hadn't been you know planning. There hadn't been any kind of decision making, mm -hmm. and so like it was sort of vague and hand waved off like oh we got this thing he didn't realize like no they already had tickets and rooms and like studio time which is kind of gonna piss off buddy because he's done nothing but to try to make graham like respectable successful bookable 
and he's just not part of this decision-making material. And so he raced home, unpacked, and packed again, and got an hour's sleep, ran to the airport, and the boys were already on the plane. They got to Chicago, and this was, it was 17 degrees. And just to note, this is a long time before ATMs and all the banks were closed, so he had no money. So he managed to get the Howard Johnson to cash a check for $2,005 just so he could have money in his pockets. And yeah. So they wait. So they, they did that for him, but they wouldn't do it for um, Chevy Chase and vacation. Really? I, I, you won't, you won't call it. You won't, you won't cash a Clark Griswold check, but this, this, this ham and egg and five and dimer walks in and you give him two grand, whatever. No, 2,500. 2,500. Good Lord. And the reason why they're there is still a little bit muddy. Dick Pope was furnishing the music to the state of Florida to promote the state and the Cypress Gardens at the 1964 World's Fair in New York. So he booked Graham and the Shilohs into the studio, which is Universal Studios, one of the more extravagant big-time studios in the country, according to Buddy. And Buddy was furious about letting him left out of the, the deal-making process. He was pissed because he wasn't part of any of this deal that the boys had made. Uh, between recording and the World's Fair, it seemed to be lining up to get the Shilohs on national TV and launch the group to the next level. But Graham and the Shilohs weren't ready. In the Chicago studio, they were recording a song called Surf and Nanny. And it's one of those tapes that seems to have disappeared a long time ago. And the owner wanted original music, but the boys didn't have any. And the recording of Surf and Nanny was original, but apparently it was so stupid that left the owner questioning their professionalism. And then after that, they went back to Greenville and back to school, and it seemed like a really good opportunity had been completely wasted. So, like, just to wrap up what I just said, basically, Buddy Freeman got a call for a slapdash recording session that the boys had somehow managed to finagle, and they were so unprofessional that they failed, and they did not get to play the World's Fair. So Graham would travel to Greenville to play small shows, and... You know, these were shows that would play in youth clubs and bowling alleys. And, you know, while he was there, they decided to record a demo. They went to the ultra-Christian, ultra-conservative Bob Jones University, which offered a recording service for $100. Now, the band was broke. Even Graham, so Paul Surratt's father, put up the fee. During the session, Joe Kelly played bass fiddle, and Graham played his new Martin and his 12-string Goya. George and Paul both had their own Martins, and Paul would play a Baker banjo. I don't know what a Baker banjo is, if it's different than a banjo, or if it's like a Les Paul being a guitar. And like a Gibson. Maybe a brand, yeah. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, a Baker banjo. It was a good product, Joe Kelly remembered. The session was recorded on a single microphone. The band crowded around in the old-time fashion, modulating the volume of their voices and instruments by leaning into the mic or leaning away. TJ, I kind of feel like one of your favorite movies, which is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I think that's what I've got in my head. Yes. The recording would be like. There's a fella in there that'll pay you to sing into the into a tin can. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> much what I'm. the vibe I'm getting from the recording studio at Bob Jones. Yeah, and and if if you could have taken every penny that I have, my car and maybe my house, if you had if you had wagered me whether or not Bob Jones University would have been mentioned in this episode. <laughs> okay, 
here's the thing. I've never been to Bob Jones University. One of the things that I vaguely remember when I was in college at Anderson was that Bob Jones had the sidewalks painted blue and pink. Is that a rumor or was that real? I don't know if that was real or not. I know there was you were not the, the there was not supposed to be hand holding on campus at that at that point. I don't know if they've gotten more lenient as time has gone on. I've been on the campus. It's a lovely it's a lovely campus, and they have a an exquisite uh, collection of you know art and things like that. But I've never. I mean, I didn't attend. I've never. I've certainly never been to like a keg. Or <laughs> yeah, I don't think that they would have those. No, they would have the. I mean, it's very. I mean, it's very conservative setting and, and very religious and. Um, things of that nature. That's why I was, I was actually kind of surprised that a couple of, you know, you know, scruffy old, you know, folk musicians were welcome, even with a hundred dollars. <laughs> to be honest with you, but yeah, I mean, and the fact that basically grandma's broke is kind of shocking, right? I mean, musicians starting off for most of well, musicians are, starting off, yeah. but I mean, given where he came from, I mean, yeah, I guess it's it's that's for the first time he's probably been. Without money, or one of the first times. Yeah, I mean, he didn't even have the $100 to put up for the recording session, because, like, Paul's dad had to do it. So, I mean, I don't know if just Avis and Bob weren't giving him money at the time, and they had money, or if he was like, I'll do this on my own. But, like, the thing is, Bob supported him in his musical endeavors, so I don't understand why he wouldn't have the money, I'm guessing, because... But she had just been given $2.5 million. So, I'm just kerfuffled I'm yeah baffled. the world may never know just like how many licks does it take to get to the center of your mama's pop or something whatever i don't even remember your mom is my mom that's gross that's a very different yeah yeah uh all right so you know they they would they would do the recording by leaning in and out and like me man of constant sorrow but when grant heard the tape he was the place where he was born and bred keep going bud <laughs> When Grant heard the tape, he was impressed, and the band ended up sending the tape to the Andy Williams Show and other television variety shows, but nothing came of it. The recording was released in 1979 as an LP by Sierra Records under the title Graham Parson, The Early Years, 1963 to 1965. So the tape wasn't lost like the Surf and Annie was. The first 10 songs are taken from the demo Parsons recorded in 1965 at the radio station with the Shilohs, a Kingston-type folk group that he was with, and then... The audio is less than ideal. The demo makes it clear that the Shilohs were more of an accomplished group that had a good path going for them and crisp instrumental work, excellent harmonies, and strong, subtly impassioned lyrics from Parsons. And the originals, Big Country and Za Blues, showed that he was really making a mark as a songwriter. And we'll get into Zaz Blues in just a little bit. So the song we're gonna play right now is a song from the Graham Parsons, the early years, 1963 to 1965, called I May Be Right. Well, I may Well, I'm 
We're back. What'd you guys okay. think of that? That's a sprightly tune. It is. It doesn't sound like country. It does sound like folk, but there's a certain band it sounds like, but uh, I think we'll get to them later. Just <laughs> I'll just keep that under my hat for right now. All right. So, uh, so yeah, the thing is, even if the audio quality isn't the best, you can still hear the potential that the guys had. Like, and that is, that is a, that is a, a strong banjo. I do love a song oh, yeah. with a good banjo on it. All right, so getting back to the story, when the school year ended, Buddy Freeman found Graham and the Shilohs a month-long gig with uh, what the the author of 20,000 Roads calls the Redneck Resort Town. Do you know what town that is, TJ? Redneck Resort Town has to be Myrtle Beach. The Dirty Myrtle. Dirty Myrtle! (laughs) (laughs) So the Shilohs played the opening slot at the Charles Fair Fort Carolina, which was a historical theme park. I don't know if Fort Carolina is still around. Do you know? Because I have not I've, been to Myrtle Beach since like 1999. It's, I, I'm not sure. Okay. Well, the park presents reenactments of battles featuring costumed local high school kids and Native Americans from Lumberton, I, North I'm Carolina. I'm going to say no. I'm going to say that's not a thing anymore. <laughs> I don't think that's a thing anymore. I don't think this is a thing anymore. No, that, I think. I think perhaps that's that that used to be where medieval times now. <laughs> <laughs> or as we like to call it, Broadway at the beach. <laughs> so they would play at this picnic pavilion that had no walls under a roof that was supported by columns. And family would sit at picnic tables and their half hour set was in by cannon fire. And the cannons told the customers that the Indians had attacked the fort and it was time to watch the reenactment. Keep it classy, South Carolina. (laughs) The band earned $850 a week for the gig. Now, there were four Shilohs, but each of them took home only $170 a week, which is one-fifth. And you're like, but wait, there are four people. Incorrect. What happened in Chicago might have put a bad taste in Buddy's mouth because he put himself in for a full cut, which I'm completely understand you know because he had been booking graham and not taking any money just trying to get this kid's foot in the door and then he has this one opportunity and he kind of screws it up so i can understand why he'd be a little pissed they had a lot of fun in myrtle beach or at least it seems i don't even know that this existed but they have a chairlift or they had a chairlift toward the beach and so the kids would hop on the chairlift so that they could get a cool breeze because remember this is summer in the south next to water. A chairlift to where at Myrtle Beach? That's the <laughs> flattest 
It is. I, so flat. I mean, no. I mean, I'm being serious. Like there aren't even any. There are barely even any hills down there. Like, chairlift or what? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm assuming the roof of the gay dolphin or something. I mean, like, what, <laughs> I'm trying to think of what, what, where, where you could be going in this chairlift. I don't. I don't know. I mean, okay, so at the Orange County Fair in Southern California, they have a chair ride, but, like, it takes you up and then takes you back down. There's no hill or anything. Like, you just yeah. ride the length of the, the park. Like one side of the fair or the other. Yeah, so it gets you to one side of the park. So maybe that's what it did. I'm thinking it was probably near where the cyclone might be now. It's, I'm, you know, it's funny. So, you know, at this point, you're also talking about chairlifts that had no, like, protective safety bar probably. Oh, no. You yeah. just dangled. And if you nah, because nah. we, we weren't a bunch of candy asses back then. We didn't need no safety bar. We didn't even have seatbelts in our car until 1986. Nah, nah. <laughs> to quote Tim Wilson, if if, if there was a seatbelt, your daddy would say, tuck that thing back in the seat before it flies around and hits somebody. <laughs> so anyway, they'd ride this chair because it was super hot. And that would be like the one way you could get a cool breeze. But they also got to dine on the concessions at the concession stands at the fair. So when the gig ended in July, Graham drove his Sprite to Georgetown, Washington, D.C. to visit his friends. Paul stayed an extra week to finish summer school, and Joe and George rode the Greyhound back to Greenville. Ten days later, Graham called the Shilohs and invited him to his mother's rented beach house down in Port Berta. So the boys got to Point Berta. They arrived on Thursday, and by Sunday, their instruments were loaded into a 1964 Chevrolet rented by Bob, and the boys took off to New York City. That's it. That's the whole story. They decided they were just going to, on a whim, go to New York City. Now, the story doesn't end there, though. In the city, the Shilohs found a gig among the numerous coffee houses in the village. They weren't paid a standard fee, but they'd pass a hat after every show. One night, Cafe Raffio... George Wrigley recognized John Phillips of the Journeyman just walking down the street. Phillips actually knew the Shilohs because the, the boys had often come to Journeyman shows. And anytime the Journeyman played within 200 miles of Greenville, John Kelly would just go and they would hang out backstage. So the boys went uptown to Phillips' apartment on 116th Street where he was living with his 20-year-old second wife, Michelle Phillips. The journeymen were history. John had started the Mamas and the Papas. In Easy to forget that Papa John Phillips was born in our home state of South Carolina, LD. Was he really? Paris Island. I will never oh. be the most famous person from South Carolina. Nope. Was Edward McCain? We have Hootie. With James Brown. And James Brown. Brown. And Chris yeah. Rock lived here. I don't know if he was born here. He lived Even in Charleston Colbert? for a while. Colbert's from here. Aziz Ansari's from here. Is uh, he? Yeah, he went to the like governor's school. For okay. science and math in Hartsville in high school. And Chadwick Bozeman. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So Joe Kelly recalls one of those songs, 1230 Young Girls Are Coming to the Canyons. And it has a line that says, outside my window was a steeple with a clock always across the street. And he looks across and uh, much to his shock, there is actually a steeple with the clock face stuck at a half past 12. So... What I'm telling does, you is... Does, um, does a flux capacitor come into play here? Or? Mm -hmm. No, but what yeah. I'm saying is I think John Phillips just managed to pass a little bit of knowledge onto Graham when it comes to writing songs. Just basically write what you know, write what you see. While they were there, Michelle Phillips would pull out her modeling scrapbooks because at the time she was doing a lot of underwear modeling. I don't know, I don't know how saucy that is, but um, I'm guessing that it was pretty saucy, and then she showed us the J.C. Penney ads out of the Sunday paper. 
And at Phillips' place, the band also met former journeyman Dick Weissman. Weissman and Phillips got the Shiloh an audition for a management group called IPA. When the boys showed up for their audition, Ringo Starr walked by. IPA was huge. In attendance at the audition was Albert Grossman, who was Bob Dylan's manager at the time. And he was basically the most powerful rock managers in America. He was huge. He was kind of the American equivalent of the Beatles manager, Brian Epstein. So imagine an Americanized version of that. But the Shilohs weren't intimidated at the audition and they were offered a contract on the spot. However, they were still in high school. They weren't even old enough to play in bars legally or to sign contracts that they had just been offered. Maybe if they had gotten Buddy Freeman involved, maybe they could have had some sort of agreement, but unfortunately they were shown the door. So another mammoth opportunity was gone and it still wasn't a complete loss while playing at the cafe next door there was the actor studio and graham met a girl named zahara and she said that he wrote the song zaz blues about her so during that summer graham would carry a notebook everywhere and constantly jotted down notes song lyrics and rough poetry he also repeatedly told the shilohs that he did not intend to live past 25. but before we get there they had to go back to school for their senior year of high school and that's where we are going to end today thoughts guys um a little creepy and unfortunately close to accurate foreshadowing there at the end i would just say we kind of you've, you've kind of laid the full backstory and foundation now and we're starting to see the beginnings of the of the actual musical journey which i mean really isn't very long to be honest with you but and yeah you think about the song we heard it sounds like a band whose name i'm not going to say because you'll mention them later fair but enough you, but if you but you listen to it you can kind of see even from that very early recording at Bob Jones University, that you can kind of see where things are going. You can kind of there's a little there's there's a little nugget there. Pay attention to it. You're like, huh? This sounds yeah. like yes, it does. It does sound like bah. Yep. Yeah. It sounds like bah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The thing is, there's so many elements to this story between Graham's family the issues that Graham is dealing with, his stepfather's infidelity, his mother's drinking, the fact that he's, you know, not great at school, but still incredibly bright. The fact that he can just pick up and go to New York and get a contract with one of the biggest management companies at the time, like he's got potential. Like he was going to be part of the world's fair if he had just taken it seriously, you know? And so I'm just, I'm just kind of at a loss because I'm still I'm still learning about Graham as I go. And I know that he burns bright and hard and fast. And unfortunately, we are going to lose him in less than 10 years. Will, do you have thoughts? I, I like TJ, did not have Bob Jones University on my bingo cards. That's <laughs> a nice left field one there. Yeah, it's always interesting to me to see kind of the family life these people come out of, you know, and it's if you look at all the subjects we covered, we had Jesus, mix of virtually everything at this point. But like you said, you know, he kind of came from this family that had money and had lost a ton of it and issues at home. And, you know, his father takes his own life and just like, you know, how much of that kind of forms into the the artist that we're, we're now seeing, it, you know, for the first time. We're seeing what we're hearing, the music, you know. Yeah. We're starting to see that kind of gel into, as you point out, a career that's not going to last all that long. You know, it's going to be, you know, 
a quick ride. So yeah. um, and it's interesting. It's interesting to see how, you know, connected he becomes in the industry and who he meets. And again, the legacy that he's going to leave. So, yeah, it's fascinating to me. And the green, the green three-piece suit is something I hope there are photos of somewhere because that's that just sounds oh, amazing. God. I really, I really, I'll, I will dig for it. I will see if I can't <laughs> find it. But that's pretty much it for this week's episode. Thank you guys so much for checking this out. Next week, we will have TJ's time machine. TJ, are you ready to go back in time? I'm going to go back in time. What year are you thinking, T? I'm going to go back in time. That is not the answer I was looking do, do, for. Do, 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 do. I'm going to okay. go back in time. He's just going to keep doing that, isn't he? To be fair, the song does okay. that. So. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, fair. All right. So, we're going to do a TJ's Time Machine next week. So, I hope you guys enjoy that. We'll get back to Graham Parsons Part 4. This is not going to be a long series. So, buckle up because I have a feeling the next couple of episodes are going to be pretty rough. All right. So, I'm going to give you guys our social stuff and then we'll say goodbye to you guys. So if you think we're doing a great job, you can go to patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. Don't bother checking out our Twitter or Instagram, rock and roll heaven LT. Check out our Facebook at rock and roll heaven pod. Still not saying our website. Our TikTok is rock and roll heaven pod. And you can email us at rock and roll heaven LT at gmail.com. And please make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. A huge thank you to our editor, editor Michael DeVestia. And our admin Thea, who is still continuing to rock it on our Facebook page and all of our socials. Pretty soon we're just going to hand her the reins over and just, she does so amazing. And so does Michael. Like we, we are having, we're building this awesome family and we can't do it without you guys. So thank you so much for checking this episode out. Check us out next week with TJ's time machine and maybe he'll stop singing and tell me what he's going to be doing. But other than that, TJ, would you like to say anything to the people out there in, in music land? I think he left. <laughs> yes, I think so. All right. I'll, I'll just I'll just do it for him. Hey, everybody. Is that a Travis impression? Yeah, that was remarkable. I thought he was here. Oh, good, good, good. All right, Will, do you have anything you would like to say to the people out there? Hey, Golden Pony Boys and Pony Girls. The song we're actually going to close out with tonight is the song that Graham wrote when he was in New York about the girl that he had met at the actor studio. So we're going to close out with Zala's Blues, and I hope you guys have a great week. Bye.
My head was filled with praise I wore my youth like a crown And watched the sun coming down Love only lasts for a moment Life holds a brief smile for all The sunshine can't last forever And soon the night must fall Memories can fade in dreams that you can't find you'll finally reach the end and never look behind no use in turning around It's just the sun coming down No use in turning around It's just the sun coming down It's just the sun coming down It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.